I invite you to open your Bibles again, this time to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. We're going to read from verses 9 to 12, although we will mainly focus on the blessing that we read on verses 11 and 12. Ruth, chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Your people is gathered today on the day that you have given us to worship you and to rest. And because we love you, we want to please you and obey you. Here we are, Father. Not only in this local congregation, but around the city of Jackson, in the state of Mississippi, in the whole of the U.S., in all the world, your people is gathered together to sing praises to the one true God. Father, as we open your word, we ask your blessing. We ask that the Holy Spirit might be working among us. Father, we know that your words are words of life, that your word was given to us so that we might know you and might know us. Father, help us so that we can understand it with our minds and apply it with our hearts. Particularly today, Father, we ask that you might strengthen our faith and renew our hope. Help us, Father, to live in light of the promises that you give to us. Help us to remember that your Son has become a man and died in our place. In the love that you have shown us through him, is our assurance that there is nothing in this world that can can separate us from you. Father, help us particularly in those times where the world seems to be against us, times of suffering, times of pain, times when we lose someone who is dear to us, that you might renew us and might... Help us to stand firm because your promises are sure and they are true and they will all come to pass. Help us, Father, in our weakness. Help us in our sinfulness. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ruth chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, 
who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay, keep in mind, especially for those who are visiting us or are joining us uh, uh, for some other reason, including the members of Castlewoods, that this is the 12th sermon on the book of Ruth. So this has a context. So do not be surprised, especially if you don't know, you never read this book, and uh, you're trying to make sense of what we just read. This has a context. This is already the 12th sermon on this book. We have sought to read, to expose, and apply this book to our lives. We have sought to do it seriously and faithfully. We have now two sermons left, God's willing, this one and next week, in which we will seek to conclude the study of this book. For several reasons, of course, some of you have been able to follow what we have been studying, but we had several interruptions. (laughs) And then we have also people that are uh, visiting us and those people who for other reasons were not able. But still, we had several interruptions. We started the study of this book in August 4th. And we are only finishing now. On top of this, of course, we changed facilities. Some things went on. But we want to keep the desire that we established from day one. And these are words from the very first sermon. Our objective, our goal is to interpret the text on the basis of what the author intended to communicate. Because we want to know what the text means, not what we would like it to mean. Because we believe that Scripture is God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word. So we must be serious and we must be careful so that we don't make Scripture to say what we want to hear, but because we want to hear from God and from what Scripture says. And in the first sermon, we have highlighted two points that summarize the book of Ruth. Number one was context, and the number two was the goal, why the book was written. The context in what it was written, and the goal, the purpose, why it was written. And now that we are getting near the goal, because if you see in your Bibles, this is the last chapter, we only have some verses left, we want to remember, to bring to our minds the context of the book, so that we understand and value what we are coming into. You see, the book of Ruth narrates the true story of how the fortunes of a woman named Naomi are changed. Of course, we call the, the, the name of this book Ruth, but actually, humanly speaking, and in the narrative, Naomi is first and foremost as the text is narrated. As we have seen in the first sermons, in the words of our commentator, the book of Ruth is a story from famine to fullness. And I want you now to turn uh, your Bibles to chapter 1, because I want to remind you that without chapter 1, we cannot properly interpret and properly value chapter 4. So I want it to bring to your minds something that we have already seen more than once, And for those who are visiting us, 
so that you might see for the first time. See how the book of Ruth starts. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. We cannot unfold all that it means, but the fact that the book starts to tell us the time frame when it occurred is extremely important. This is how Scripture itself encapsulates the time when this story develops. At that time, uh, the, the people of Israel didn't have a king. They were ruled by judges in different places. There was ju- not just one judge, but several judges to whom the people would go every time they had a need. There was a law, the law of Moses, the law that God gave to Moses. That was the law. And every time there was a dispute, there was a problem, there was something that was needed, they would go to the judge so that the judge would say what to do according to the law of God. But this is how Scripture encapsulates in the book of Judges that time. That in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21-25. It was a time of social, political, and moral chaos. Literally, go back and read the book of Judges and stay in awe in shock of what you read. It was full chaos. The time when this story develops had all the ingredients for disaster and condemnation. And as we start to read the book, the prospects are bleak. If the first words are, in the days when the judges ruled, your reaction as a reader should be, "Uh uh-oh, it's not going to end well. At least it's not starting well. And then the narrative continues. See verses 1 to 5. In what we have called a series of unfortunate events. Do you remember that? We have concluded that the reality of the people as a whole. Of chaos. Both social, political and moral. Was also the reality of a particular family. Faced with the consequences of sin. There was a famine in the land, that's what the text says. Elimelech, Naomi his wife, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, embark on a trip and abandon their people in the promised land, hoping to find a better life. But contrary to their expectations, Elimelech doesn't find prosperity in that land. In a land where the people were cursed by God. Instead of that, we see in the first five verses that Elimelech dies. And then his sons, in a clear disobedience to God's law, they marry two pagan wives. And after ten years, the text tells us that these sons also die. Do you know what that means? It means that not only it was in a time of chaos when the judges ruled, but now we have this woman this widow and childless woman in a context where a woman, by all means, should not be alone. And she's exposed. You see, we we see in the text that the result of these events is that this woman called Naomi becomes bitter. She decides to go back to her homeland deprived of all her possessions in complete shame 
and more importantly, having lost both her husband and her two sons. Her words are clear and express how she feels. If you see verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1, she said to them, because she comes back to her hometown, Bethlehem, and the people start to say, is that, is that Naomi? And Naomi, by the way, names were given because they had a meaning. Naomi simply means pleasant. Is that the pleasant woman? Is that Naomi? And this is how she replies. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Basically saying, do not call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You see, what I want you to note is as we read chapter 4, we must remember chapter 1. Because the book of Ruth is intentionally a story of contrasts, chaos and kingship, empty and full, leaving and returning, absent and present, barren and fertile, sad and happy, mourning and joyful, bitter or unpleasant, sweet and pleasant, afflicted and comforted, troubled and restful, lost and found, exposed or protected, discouraged hopeful, despaired, and redeemed. All of these were taken, let me say, directly from the text in a story that has only approximately 2,400 words. At the same time as we follow the life of this woman and her change of fortunes, we must also realize the reason why her fortunes have changed. And this is crucial so that we understand why it happened As we observe throughout the sermons, the book of Ruth is first and foremost about God, His sovereignty, His goodness, and His faithfulness. As we read the plot of this book, we must recognize why it was written so that it might edify us in our souls. You see, the book of Ruth was primarily written to reveal how God remained faithful to His promises, even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of His people. It is about how God has secured salvation for His people, even when the people didn't care about Him. The book of Ruth was written to show that God's steadfast love never fails and that His covenantal promises are true. The book of Ruth was written to teach us that even when circumstances seem to indicate that God is not present... Those circumstances we experience do not define our relationship with God. We learn that God works in mysterious ways, way above what we can grasp. And even when it feels that God is absent, like Naomi thought, God reminds us once again that He does not abandon His people, that He is faithful to His promises, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. What a security. The book that we call Root fits perfectly in our circumstances today. This week we have dealt with death face to face. Our brother Bob Kiefer has faced the last enemy. 
He has fought the good fight. He finished the race. And most importantly, he has kept his faith. Miss Paula, family, close friends are mourning the loss of a dear one. That there is sadness and pain. And we want to recognize that publicly. And I give the example of Brother Bob. And I could mention others like Ashley's uncle. And others who are struggling in many ways. Remember that we feel every day the effects of sin all around us. There are particular times that are more common to some than to others where it seems that the sun ceased to exist, at least for us when we're suffering. And we are in the middle of a storm when the sky is gray and all is bleak. And this is how the book of Ruth starts, with the effects of sin clearly present before us. And we know that because from time to time, we also have to face it. But I want you to remember, making now the transition to chapter 4, that this is also the month when our culture celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ, to whom, as we will see mainly next week, the book of Ruth ultimately points to. As we will see, the book of Ruth ends with a mentioning or mentioning twice King David. However, King David was never intended to be the final fulfilling of God's promises. He was part of God's promises. But God had something better for us. Those were fulfilled when the Son of God became a man, suffered, died, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and sat at the right hand of the Father. Those are the fulfillment of God's promises. And the promises of God will be consummated when our Lord Jesus returns. So you see, the book of Ruth is about God's sovereignty and about God's faithfulness. The book of Ruth was written to strengthen our faith and to renew our hope. Listen me carefully. As we read chapter 4, where the sun is shining, we must keep in mind chapter 1, where reality is dark. So that when we live times like those of chapter 1, we might endure them in light of chapter 4. Remember that in chapter 1, neither Naomi nor Ruth had a clue of what God had in store for them. Naomi, as an Israelite, she knew God's promises, but she let circumstances dictate her life and actions, and that lead her to bitterness. When we don't live in faith, when we don't believe in God's promises, when we let circumstances dictate our life, the result sooner or later might be bitterness because sometimes circumstances are overwhelming to us. And you know what I'm talking about, especially those difficult times. The book of Ruth is given to us to strengthen our faith, to renew our hope, so that we might not live like Naomi did. The book of Ruth is given to us so that we might live in light of God's promises when chaos rules around us. So let us turn now to chapter 4, and particularly to verses 11 and 12. If you remember at this point of the story, Ruth had met Boaz, and Boaz promised Ruth. He told her, look, Because Ruth had asked him to be 
her Redeemer. And Boaz turns to Ruth and says, I'm willing to do that, but there is a closest relative who has not only the right, but the responsibility to do so. But wait, because tomorrow I will go and talk to him. If he redeems you, that's, that's fine. But if he doesn't, I will. And that's what he does. Right in the morning, he goes to the gates of the city because that's where business was held. He meets with this man whom we don't know the name. And we already talked about that we believe that that is uh, purposefully uh, so that we don't even know his name. He is a nameless man. He's only called Redeemer, which is ironical because he refused to be the Redeemer of Ruth. But he talks to this man, and in the middle of their conversation, they come to an agreement. Boaz is going to be the Redeemer. He is going to buy back the land that belonged to Elimelech, and he is going to marry Ruth. Those are good news. And he receives the sandal of the man because it was the way that things were settled by then. Remember that there was no paper. At, at that time, there were ways of establishing an agreement. And when he receives that sandal, he turns to the people that are around him and says, if you can see that we read them in verses 9 and 10, you are witnesses of this agreement today. You are witnesses that I'm going to buy this field You are witnesses that I'm going to marry Ruth. And when he says this, his affirmation is in a sort of question. So that people confirm that they heard and know what is going on. Again, remember that there was no paper. And so you need to establish things so that they might be reminded in the future. Okay, there were witnesses. There were signs of the agreement that was made. And the men that were present recognized their role as witnesses. See verses 11 and 12 again. We're going to read them again. And they say this. They say, we are witnesses. Boaz asks them, are you witnesses? And they said, yes, we are. We are witnesses that this took place. But they don't end there. They bless Boaz. And this is what they say. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let me just say three simple things or three observations about this blessing. The first will be the extent of the blessing. Number two will be the time frame of the blessing. And number three, the author and actor of the blessing. Let's start with the extent of the blessing. That first, God's promises are indescribable, both in degree and scope. On the one hand, see this. The man want to compare the future of Ruth to Rachel and Leah. Now keep in mind, Rachel and Leah were the mothers of the twelve tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob. It is true that Jacob, remember this, Jacob had sons from four women. Do you remember that? 
but two of them were actually servants of Rachel and Leah. So technically, legally, they are all sons of Rachel and Leah. So see what these men are saying concerning Ruth. We want Ruth to have a future that is compared to no one less than the matriarchs of Israel. Wow, what a great blessing. The man blesses Boaz way above anything that he could expect or even dream of. Ruth the Moabite, remember, she was a stranger. She was a a pagan woman. Ruth the Moabite not only is to be incorporated and accepted in the people of Israel, but she is elevated to the stature of the matriarchs of Israel. Brothers and sisters, God's promises are way above our understanding and imagination. God does much above what you can think or imagine. Boaz believed in God's promises, but he could have never imagined that what God was about to do, way above whatever he could have imagined. But on the other hand, note this also, that there is another comparison, a comparison with Tamar, which shows us that God's promises know no boundaries. Record this in your your minds. Tamar's story is recorded in Genesis 38. We don't have time to go there. You can read it at home. But let me say, it's not a pretty story. Tamar reminds us of God's sovereign grace and how God acts in the darkest days and also in the most unexpected ways. That God acts even in the midst of human sinfulness, even in the midst of chaos that sin brings. God is working His salvation for His people. In fact, remember that God's grace is necessary because of sin. You see, we will only value chapter 4. We will only value Naomi's salvation. We will only value what Boaz has done for her if we understand chapter 1 and where she came from and how she was in dire distress and needed someone to do something for her. And we need to realize this. And the beauty is that using Tamar, which was a bad example, which was a shameful example, what the Lord is telling us, I continue to act in the same way just as I'm acting with Ruth now. Just as I act also with you. Not because you were perfect and good, but because I'm a good God and I'm a gracious God. That's the difference. We are not saved or come to God or are accepted before God because we're good. We are accepted before Him because He is good and He provided salvation for us. His grace has no boundaries. It is for all. It is offered to all, black and white, rich or poor, educated or ignorant, of every nation, there are only two conditions for being accepted before God. They are named repentance and faith. As we read in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all good girl, because we cannot be But if we confess our sins, 
God is good. God is righteous. The promises of God are true and are sure. Even when we don't feel they are. Even when the sun is not shining. But the promises of God are also good and way above all that we can imagine. Not in his wildest dreams could Boaz expect such blessing. And such are God's promises to us too. They are true and sure. We can rest in them. They are so sure that we can live as if they were already in our possession. They are so sure to the point that they allowed the prophet Habakkuk to pray in this way. And we have studied this book. And if you know in what condition the prophet Habakkuk was, you will realize how significant these words are. At a certain point when God reveals to the prophet Habakkuk how dark reality is and how even darker reality will be, Habakkuk has to face circumstances and believe in God's promises. And at a certain point, after being convinced by God, he prays, Though the fig tree should not blossom, not fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Number two, the time frame of the blessing. Boaz receives this blessing, but note, he never sees its fulfillment. Remember, the book of Ruth was written way after Boaz died. It has a reference to King David. It has a reference to the genealogy. So it was way after he died. He received the blessing, but he did not see its fulfillment while he was alive. On this side of history, we already know what God did. We already know that Boaz was the great-grandfather of King David. We already know that through that genealogy, we are here today celebrating Christmas Because Jesus is descendant of King David, and King David is descendant of Boaz. But Boaz did not know. Remember that. Our culture is very impatient in its expectations. People want results for yesterday. People want immediate gratification. We want immediate rewards. But Scripture teaches us that the believer should live by faith. We are taught that without faith, as we read in Hebrews 11, we cannot please God. We must believe in His promises, live as if we are already in possession of them, knowing that God can be trusted. You see, this is the example that our fathers in faith left us. Let me just read verses 13 and 16 of Hebrews 11 again. These all, He gives all those examples of Noah, of Abraham and Sarah, and even more, and said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Boaz is among those. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, note this, because of their faith, because of what they hope, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. You see, Boaz lived and died trusting in God, and God fulfilled His promises, even though Boaz did not see it on this earth. They were fulfilled, and he died in faith and in hope, and he will be with us in eternity. You see. Number three and final. The object, the author, and the actor of the blessing. Finally, I want you to note this. These men pronounce a blessing over Boaz, right? The question is, who fulfills the blessing according to those men? Is it circumstances? Is it just chance? Note how it starts. It starts like this. May the Lord make. That's how it starts. But now note also in verse 12 how it ends. Because it's the beginning and it's the end of the blessing. It ends with a reason. Because of the offspring that who? The Lord will give you. So they pronounce a blessing. But they know that that blessing only can come about because God will act. God will be the one making sure that that promise and that blessing will be true and will come to pass. In the book of Ruth, we see that God works out His plans through His righteous servants. We have the examples of Boaz. We have the examples of Ruth. But at the same time, do not forget that although we are called to look at them, although we are called to follow their example, this book is not ultimately about Boaz and Ruth. You see, Boaz and Ruth needed a Redeemer as much as you and I do. They also had to believe in God and His promises for their own salvation. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. She belonged to a cursed people, disobedient to God who couldn't care less about God. And even Boaz, keep in mind, what did Boaz have that was not given to him? Did he create his own life? Did he choose in which family he was born? Did he choose which body he was born into? Was he responsible for his health or even wealth? No, according to the text, it was God that brought the famine in Ruth. It was God also who visited His people and brought food. So even Boaz's prosperity was God's graciousness towards him, not because he was good. They also needed a Savior like you and I. It was always God who was working out His plans in the salvation of His people. You know, He uses ordinary means, common means. He uses ordinary people like you and me. But He is the only one who can save. You see, I can preach the Word. I can call you to repentance and faith. I can tell you what God expects from you. I'm sorry, I cannot save you. There is nothing I can do to convince you. But God can. But God can. 
So please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Maintain like one hand or a mark in Ruth and just turn quickly to Hebrews 12. See what the first three verses say. It's a known text. Let's come to it again. Therefore, remember that chapter 11 is full of those examples of faith. Do you remember that? So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin with cling so closely... And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But now note, we have all this cloud of witnesses, all these examples, so that we know that we are not the only ones. In history, there were many who went before us, who were faithful. But can they save us? Are they able to come today? and save us, and do something for us, apart from their example? No, 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 no. See verse 2. Because this is the great good news. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I want you to note this, that although we have all those that precede us, leaving us an example, the exhortation is clear. Look to Jesus. He is your Savior. He is both the author and the actor of your faith. He is the one the only one who is able to bring you to conversion and to build up your faith so that you stand firm all your life until God calls you. Do you understand? These are the good news. Because the gospel, the good news are not, come, be a good boy, and you will be saved. Now instead is, come, trust in God, and He will save you. You see the difference. See the main reason that is given again on Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. This is the main reason that the blessing was sure. Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman, which was Ruth. In fact, we should note that the Lord Jesus is actually the ultimate object of this blessing. The blessing is not given solely to Boaz. Note this, very important. In our individualistic culture, we see all things as pertaining to the individual. But remember that our salvation is personal, but is not individual. As if God or our Lord Jesus had become like one of us to save independent individuals. That's not true. Scripture teaches us that our Lord Jesus, God Himself, has become like one of us to save His people. It is to His people that He came. And all those who are united 
to Christ become one family and one people. So the promises given to Boaz are ultimately fulfilled in King David, then finally, and even more, in a greater way, in the Lord Jesus. And if we are in Him, and trust in Him, and are united to Him, those promises are also ours. Now stay in awe, because you didn't deserve any of them. This blessing was a blessing to a line that started where? When the promise was given in Genesis 3.16, when the promise was given to Abraham, when the people was created. It is given to all those who believed throughout the ages, was fulfilled completely in the Lord Jesus, and all those who believe in Him and trust in Him are part of these promises and part of this life. So when the text says, when they bless Boaz, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, to whom is it referring to? Immediately, to Boaz. Ultimately, to the Lord Jesus. He would be the one that would act worthily more than any other. As we have seen, he is the one who has the name above all names. Philippians 2, 5 and 11. The one who was God himself that did not grasp his position, that became a human being like you and me, that obeyed the Father till the point of death and death on the cross. And because of that, every knee shall bow. A name above all names. This blessing was fulfilled in our Lord Jesus. So after Boaz died, when King David was born, God also promised King David with the same promise. We read 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You see, King David was not the end of the story. Immediately, this promise in 2 Samuel 7 were about Solomon, but ultimately and fully the Lord Jesus. Because even when Solomon died, the prophecy was given to Isaiah, the same promise. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. The zeal of the Lord will do this. And the zeal of the Lord did this. Because when we read in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel came to that virgin called Mary, these are his words. He will be great about this son that will be born out of that virgin. He will be great, we read in Luke 1, 32 and 33. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, it is this prophecy that we eagerly wait to see it consummated before our eyes. It's the promise we read in Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew this, his trumpet, 
And there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Just to end then, brothers and sisters, the Old Testament grows in expectation for the coming of the Savior and of the Messiah. It is that coming. That's what Advent means. It is that coming in the person of the Lord Jesus that we celebrate this month. In this celebration, we are reminded of the God-made man for our salvation. His incarnation so that he could be like you and me. But the story is not over. We live in the expectation of the return of the King. And as we wait for His return, let us wait patiently with faith and hope. God's promises are true and never failing. His grace is abounding and covers every sin. His mercy knows no boundaries. He forgives all those who truly repent. And more, He is both the founder and perfecter of our faith, meaning that He is the one that sustains us. So take courage in your weakness because His strength is greater than all our weakness and sinfulness. Let the glory be given solely to Him. Amen.